everyone. 2023 Kirk here. And just this past week, the production company A24 made an exciting announcement. Fresh off their near sweep of the Oscars, they're planning a new theatrical run for Jonathan Demme's beloved 1984 concert film, Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. I am unsurprisingly so excited about this. Stop Making Sense was probably my favorite concert film before I made the episode that you're about to hear, but after watching it and re-watching it, learning all the songs and going through it all on Strong Songs, it's gone beyond my favorite into, I don't know, some other realm, whatever realm lies beyond your favorite things. I am psyched to go see the film in theaters when the run happens. Hey, maybe we can organize a viewing at whatever Portland theater winds up showing it. But in the meantime, it just felt like a good time to repost my year-end capper from 2021, all about the movie and the music, the performances, all those incredible musicians on stage together. Since it's been just long enough that I bet there are some of you out there who have forgotten a few things from this, even if you already heard it. And I know there are probably some of you who've never heard this episode. Of course, you probably already know that I am still taking a bit of a break here at the start of 2023, which is why you've been seeing older episodes reshared in the podcast feed instead of new episodes. Don't worry, that's not going to go on forever. I do have some exciting stuff planned for when I'm back to making new episodes. But for now, this has actually been a really, really good break for me, both personally and as a musician. I've been hard at work improving my craft, writing new material. In particular, I've been making some major breakthroughs on the guitar and with my singing recently, which is pretty exciting. Um, Both of those are things that I'm excited to talk more about on the show, but it's just been great to be able to take the time to really work on that stuff. So thank you so much to all of my patrons on Patreon who support the creation of this show and support me creating it in the way that I want to do it, which, yes, sometimes involves taking breaks. I'm increasingly in favor of reinforcing a culture where people don't feel the need to work, 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 work until they burn out and instead can, you know, make stuff they love in a sustainable way for a much longer period of time without burning out. So thank you so much to everyone who supports me on Patreon. Thank you for making this all possible. If you want to support Strong Songs, you can sign up at patreon.com slash strong songs. And there's also a link for one-time donations in the show notes. And thanks so much also to everyone who sent in a one-time donation because you're really helping out too. Okay, lots of good stuff on the horizon. But for now, I hope you enjoy this analysis of Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense, and I'll see you at the pictures. When a guitar is recorded direct, that means the guitar cable is running directly into the recording interface with no amp or acoustic sound in between. Direct recording can be useful for a number of reasons from sound isolation to tone, but the best thing about it is that you don't need to bring an amp to the studio. Welcome! Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I really am so glad that you're here to talk about guitars that are recorded direct, guitars that are recorded through amps, and sometimes guitars that are recorded acoustically. This show is entirely listener-supported. Thank you so much to all of my patrons for keeping this thing going, but thanks as well to all of you who spread the word and tell your friends about the show. I don't do very much promotional work, and I really rely on word of mouth to grow my audience, and I appreciate each and every one of you that helps with that. On this episode, it's time for something different. I am not going to be talking about a song or even an album. I'm going to be talking about a movie, one of the greatest music films ever made, and one that's brought me a lot of joy over the past year. I'm excited to get into it, so let's build up the stage, put on our big suits, and hit this thing.
almost intuitively have a sense of what a band is. We know our favorite bands. We know our least favorite bands. If you say, well, name some bands for me, you'll think, oh, well, yeah, okay. I know some bands. I can tell you what a band is. But if you actually drill down a little bit into the concept of a band, it can get a little bit more complicated. Bands change personnel over the years. Bands add musicians for some albums or tours. Bands lose members as people leave. So the thing that makes a band a band is always in flux. It's always changing. Some bands have more than a dozen members. Some bands are really just a single person. Hi. I've got a tape I want to play. And some bands manage to be each of those things all during the course of a single performance. The band I'm going to be talking about on this episode is just such a band, captured in all their shape-shifting glory by one of the finest concert films ever made. It's a film that starts small, a single man with a boombox and an acoustic guitar, alone on an undressed stage. Can't seem to face up to the facts I'm so nervous, can't relax Can't sleep, fed from fire Is that one man the band? It'd be easy to think so, and plenty of discussion of this band acts like he is, but no, he's not the band, and that's the point. He's the advance guard, the herald opening the doors at the beginning of the show. A couple of numbers later, that man's been joined by three more musicians, a drummer, a bassist, and a guitarist. Together, the four of them play a song in a traditional rock band format. Surely these four musicians are the band, right? Surely this is as big as this show's gonna get? Well, no, I mean, come on, he knew where this was going. He knew that wasn't as big as the band was gonna get. One song and five more musicians later, a full nine-piece ensemble is on stage. Lead and backup vocals, keyboards, drums, bass, percussion, electric and acoustic guitar. 20 minutes into the show, this is the band. For this night on stage, these nine musicians are talking heads. On this episode, I'm so excited to talk not about a single Talking Heads song or even a single Talking Heads album, but a concert film held up by many as THE concert film, Jonathan Demme's 1984 chronicle of what has to be one of the greatest runs of live shows ever, Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. So yeah, we're going to be talking about bassist Tina Weymouth and drummer Chris Franz, guitarist Jerry Harrison, and of course, genius songwriter and frontman David Byrne. But I'm actually going to focus more on the other musicians who took the stage as Talking Heads that night, the musicians who were entirely instrumental for the energy and musical power of the show. Percussionist Steve Scales, vocalists Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt, keyboardist Bernie Worrell, and guitarist Alex Weir. Stop Making Sense is a concert film directed by the great Jonathan Demme, who most folks know as the Academy Award-winning director of The Silence of the Lambs. Demme was known for his humanist directorial style. There's other movies he's made like Something Wild and Philadelphia. If you've seen any of his movies, you know that he really knows how to capture the humanity of his subjects. 
Stop Making Sense is no exception to that. It's an incredible film. I've watched it all the way through three times, like in the past couple of days. I've watched it so many times just over the past week, which is unusual. I usually listen to albums, you know, while I'm working on this show, but I've never made an episode of the show about a movie. It's been a really cool experience, and I cannot recommend watching this concert film enough. Now, it's fitting that we're actually going to talk about the audio part of Stop Making Sense because the film was also released as an album. The album was a hit in its own right. And as it happens, the album version of Stop Making Sense was the version that I first became familiar with. I listened to the album version of this way, way before I ever saw the movie. And it was actually the thing that got me into Talking Heads. So it was almost 20 years ago I had just moved to San Francisco and I found this album, Stop Making Sense, among some MP3s that my roommate shared with me on my at-the-time new iPod. I knew of Talking Heads, I knew some of their songs, I thought I knew what they were all about, I wasn't super familiar with them or anything. But a few minutes in, the song Slippery People came on, and my whole opinion changed. I was just immediately grabbed by that sound, this lead singer yelping away, these backup vocalists doing call and response, the whole thing was so funky, it was so exciting, it just wasn't what I thought Talking Heads sounded like. Of course, I didn't know at the time, but vocalists Lynn Maybury and Edna Holt had joined Talking Heads for this show, and that song was actually a really big moment in the film. That's when those two singers first come out on stage and harmonize with Byrne. Even without the visual, I found it so exciting, it still worked on me, even though I wasn't watching the movie, and from that song onward, I just sat and listened to the whole thing with, like, rapt attention. I didn't know at the time who was technically considered a member of Talking Heads. The band actually consists of four people, David Byrne on guitar and lead vocals, Tina Weymouth on bass, Jerry Harrison on guitar and keyboards, and Chris France on drums. Like, that's Talking Heads. They play on all the Talking Heads albums. One or more of them wrote all of the Talking Heads music. That's Talking Heads, and they are great, of course. You don't need me to tell you Talking Heads is great. I love the band. I've come to really, really like them. I've listened to every single one of their albums. They're amazing. But the thing that actually got me into them in the first place was the way that Mabry and Holt's vocals fit in with the rest of the group. Like, I'm not exaggerating that when their backup vocals came in on people, my eyes just snapped open and I was like, okay, wait a minute, I have to completely rework my whole understanding of this band. Those musicians, Weir, Worrell, Holt, Mabry, and Scales, they were the ones who won me over to the show and to Talking Heads in general. They're such a crucial part of what makes Stop Making Sense so great, and they're going to be our guide through that first hour of the film. So let's rewind this thing back to the first and second songs of the set. And I'll just note here, I'm going to refer to this like it's a single show. In truth, Stop Making Sense was recorded over a series of nights at a theater in L.A. The film is a single performance. It's presented as a single version of their performance. And so I'm going to talk about it that way. So the first two songs of Stop Making Sense, Psycho Killer and Heaven, they're the two most stripped down. The first one, Psycho Killer, that's just David Byrne on stage by himself singing the song. For the second song, Heaven, he's joined by bassist Tina Weymouth, and they perform the song as a duo. Everyone is trying. 
get to the bar Name of the bar The bar is called heaven Except, well, here's the thing. That's actually not accurate about either of those songs. Psycho Killer isn't actually a solo performance, and Heaven isn't actually a duet. For Psycho Killer, Burn is accompanied by an 808 drum machine that's played over the PA, which significantly increases the musical complexity of the performance, compared to if he had just performed it with an acoustic guitar. That's especially true toward the end, when the 808 begins changing up its patterns while he kind of stumble dances around on the stage. And while Heaven starts out sounding like a standard acoustic bass, acoustic guitar, single vocal duet, play it one more time. When they reach the chorus, something unexpected and magical happens. Oh, Powerful female backup vocal harmony enters the arrangement, seemingly conjured out of thin air. Heaven, heaven is a place. That voice belongs to the great Lynn Mabry, one of two female vocalists who joined Talking Heads for this show, and if you were just listening to the album, you might picture her standing on stage next to Burn and Weymouth, but that's not actually what happens in the performance. It's a lot cooler than that, I think anyways. She's singing from off stage, and to me that really heightens the magic of her entrance on the chorus, because visually, you think you're going to hear one thing. You're looking at these two musicians, and you maybe even have a sense of how things are going to work. Okay, so there was one guy, and now there's two people, maybe they'll add a third for the next song, but they do this surprising thing where this soaring and beautiful voice appears as if out of nowhere. So when Byrne begins singing that chorus, the camera even cuts from a close-up of him in Weymouth to a wide shot of the entire stage to emphasize the fact that Mabry's voice isn't coming from someone standing on the stage, like she didn't sneak on out of frame, she's just not there, so you and the audience in the room are all thinking the same thing. What is that voice? Where is that voice coming from? It's this ethereal thing and it's really fitting given that this is a song about heaven. And I watched the entire rest of the song after that first chorus in a kind of a heightened state because I was aware that I was hearing something that I wasn't seeing. And it's like a little mystery that really draws you in. It's also just a beautiful vocal harmony part. This is a really beautiful song, I think. It's a really simple song, kind of just this strummy acoustic guitar kind of a thing. But it's one of my favorite Talking Heads songs. I love the lyrics. I love the imagery that it conjures. I just think it's a really beautiful song. And I love the original recording of this that's on their 79 record, Fear of Music. It's really lovely. Lovely. It's very different than the live version, but it really works. Like I said, harmonically, it's pretty simple. The verses are in D major and the chorus is in, I guess, B minor, the relative minor to D major, or at least it starts there. Anyway, the chords of the chorus, it just goes B minor, then it walks down to A minor, then it walks up to C major, and then it goes to G major. Those are great chords on the guitar, um, just really straightforward chorus, but it's nice. The melody is equally simple. It just sort of moves around the first four notes of the D major scale.
Also, I know I mentioned direct recording in the intro. I'm recording my acoustic guitar with a microphone. They definitely recorded Burns' guitar direct. You can hear that kind of plasticky direct acoustic sound on this record. It's a very distinct sound. Anyway, it's a straightforward melody, and with that melody in mind, listen to the chorus on the original recording and pay attention to the overdub backup harmonies and just listen to how they're singing it. Okay, now listen to how Lynn Mabry sings it in Stop Making Sense. just beautiful. Her backup harmony adds a whole new contour and emotion to the chorus. She's singing mostly notes that existed in the original version, but she's singing them up the octave, and that just makes them stick out a whole lot more, along with the fact that the instrumentation is way more stripped down, there's just less going on, so it's easier to focus on the vocals. I really like that phrase in particular. Burns sings... Heaven is a place, but Mabry stays put upon the A. Heaven is a place. And it creates this really nice contrast between the two lines and lets her voice really stand out. Heaven is a place. It's a beautiful and kind of sneaky way to introduce Mabry before she and fellow vocalist Edna Holt come out on stage a couple of songs later. When they do come on stage, they come on along with the great Steve Scales, who will go on to play percussion back in his huge percussion setup on stage. But when he first comes on, it's just him with his bongo drums. He sits down near the front of the stage. And all three of them, they bring such a spark and energy to the stage. There's just this feeling of expansion that's happening. And this moment also happens to line up with the moment when the backdrop finally changes. The first part of Stop Making Sense is performed with a totally unfinished stage, an unlit stage in the background, and that's on purpose. It's supposed to look sort of ramshackle and incomplete, and as they kind of first are coming out onto the stage, it still just sort of looks like some people rehearsing before a show. It doesn't look like a show. And then as Mabry Holton Scales come on stage, the backdrop comes down, the stage lighting kicks in, and suddenly it looks like you're at a rock show. It kind of just snaps into focus in a matter of seconds, and before you you know it, the whole thing is transformed. They go right into Slippery People, and Mabry, Holt, and Scales each immediately become essential parts of that song. For starters, there's just this exuberance that all three musicians display when they take the stage. Steve Scales is just this extremely ebullient guy. He has all these fun little moments in the film where he like looks at the camera and makes a funny face. He's just grinning his face off on stage. He's clearly having a ball. Mabry and Holt, they like bounce onto stage when it's their time to finally come on. It's this huge energy, and it's a real contrast to the energy that Talking Heads has been putting out up until that point. There's a really interesting contrast, I think, between David Byrne and actually everybody else on stage. He is this very intense, largely unsmiling presence. I think the only moment 
when he smiles is when he does that dance with the lamp later. And it's a really beautiful moment because it's this genuine smile from him when he's so in character for the rest of the performance. And he bounces off everyone else in a way that's really cool. Mabry and Holt are the strongest contrast to him in every possible way. So when, especially on Slippery People, when they begin to dance together and work in tandem, it creates this real frisson. It's really exciting and very cool to see. Both singers speak fondly of their time performing with the band. In this 2020 American Songwriter interview, Holt says she figured this was it, that she'd peaked. She says, I thought I just can't have fun every night. We had fun every night. We had a ball. Honest to goodness, I thought I was going to die when I was done. Okay, so that groove, Slippery People's Groove, is totally out of control. It's a contender for my favorite song in all of Stop Making Sense, and it's mainly just because it grooves so hard I cannot not move when I listen to this. Burn has switched from acoustic to electric guitar. He's playing this interesting guitar. It's like a humbucker. I think it's a guild guitar. He only plays it a couple times on the show. He mostly plays a Fender Stratocaster, but occasionally he'll pull out this other guitar, and he's playing that here. He's playing this kind of light, funky pattern, really simple stuff. This song is basically just a one-chord song. It's an A minor and he's kind of just going on an A minor thing. Harrison has actually gone over to the keyboard so he's playing these really funky keyboard parts. He's playing a couple different instruments, some sort of electric piano on the bottom and on top I'm pretty sure that this is a Prophet 5 synthesizer. I don't have either of those so I can't recreate his tones exactly but it's a classic sound. And uh, the keyboard part is a big part of Slippery People, really really drives the groove. Tina Weymouth is still playing the electric bass. She switches over to keyboard bass on various songs during this concert, but she's still playing electric here. France is just playing the drums. And the bass and the drum groove are it's pretty straightforward. They're both playing pretty straightforward things if you listen to them on their own. Which, of course, leads us to the great Steve Scales and his bongo playing, which really is the thing that makes this tune bounce the way that it does. This is another example of the power of percussion, the power of having a percussionist in your band. I talked about this recently when I was talking about Earth, Wind & Fire's September. That's another great example of a groove where the drums and the bass, like the drum set and the bass, are playing pretty straightforward things. I mean, obviously they're both great players at Earth, Wind & Fire, but the groove is a pretty straightforward groove. But then when you add the percussion in and on that song there's actually bongos playing throughout the entire recording um, it really kind of brings the groove to life and it gives it its specificity that's also the case here here's just the bass and drums again now let's add in the bongos They had so much subdivision, there's so much bounce, and the keys in the guitar are actually doing even more subdividing, so let's add those in too. Even in my little recreation of it, there's just so much pulse to this tune. interesting to compare this live version of Slippery People with the studio version which was released a year earlier in 1983 on Speaking in Tongues. Check it out. 
It feels so different, right? And that's mostly because of the tempo. So on the album, they're playing at about 105 beats per minute. That's 10 clicks, 10 beats per minute slower than how they do it live on Stop Making Sense. They're there at about 115 beats per minute. It's really common for that to happen. Bands will just play faster live. I've done it all the time. Adrenaline is a real thing. And it gets you. I don't know if this was a conscious decision or not, but I actually really like the pulse at 115. It goes to show what a big difference 10 clicks can make. Like 105 beats per minute may not sound like it's that different from 115 beats per minute, but in practice, it's the difference between this and this. <laughs> kind of a big 10 clicks. Another comparison I think is kind of interesting is actually between the audio mix on the film and the audio mix on the album. I've been using the album tracks for this episode partly because they were the way that I first heard Stop Making Sense and partly because I think the album mix just is kind of punchier and stronger, which sort of makes sense. The film audio mix is just a little less finished sounding, it sounds more live, and it kind of works when combined with the visuals. It feels a little bit more like you're there, but the mix on the album version sounds a little bit more like an album, it just sounds a little tighter, a little bit more polished. Um, here's the mix from the film and here's the same section from the album version The mix on the album version is just more consistent in part because the film mix tends to emphasize whichever musician is actually in the frame. That sometimes brings out individual voices and instruments in interesting ways, at least for me as someone who is more familiar with the album version. The audio for Stop Making Sense was actually recorded digitally, which was a big deal at the time. That was a little more unusual. I'm not sure, but I'd guess that gave them more freedom as they were editing the film to dynamically shift the audio mix depending on what the camera was showing. In the end, it's the difference between this and this. The punchiness of the album version really serves my favorite part of this tune. It's the breakdown after the keyboard solo. This is when Byrne, Mabry, and Holt begin doing those mirrored high steps. This is kind of a very famous moment from this performance. They're kind of playing air guitar along with him. It's a really charming and memorable thing. But the groove, as always, is what makes it work. It's just these super tight 16th notes from everybody. Dick it, 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 dick it. So this is the lowest they go in the breakdown. They do some great layering. First the bongos come in. Then the keyboard and the bongo begin to play together. Then Burns' vocals come in. With this really cool new synth part running in counterpoint.
Man, that's one of my favorite David Byrne vocal performances in this whole thing. I think he sounds so awesome here. A lot of it is how he fits in with the groove, but also it's just his voice. I, I love David Byrne's voice. I love David Byrne in general. But Jerry Harrison, man, Jerry Harrison is doing such great work on this tune. It's fitting that this is kind of his big keyboard tune before Bernie Worrell comes out. And I mean, Bernie Worrell, he elevates the keyboard game. He brings so much cool stuff to this concert. But Harrison is killing it here. I love what he does here. He does this kind of ascending A minor 7 chord. He just kind of goes up adding a new chord tone each time, getting a little bit higher, and he's just in perfect timing with Steve Scales' bongos. The monitors must have been really good on stage because they could super hear each other, and they're just right in the pocket together. Listen to that. Listen for how the keyboard and the bongos are really, really vibing. And then when Burton comes in, Harrison really quickly switches to this other synth that kind of moves through this. It's got like an envelope filter auto wah thing that's running in counterpoint to what Burn is doing. It's this more sparse rhythmic thing that's just kind of punching in over at the side as Burn does his kind of funky yodeling. From there, it's just a party on the chorus. They just vamp on that thing and take it out. The stage is fully set, the backdrop is down, the band is on this totally new level in terms of funkiness and groove, so they bring the whole thing home with one of the most dramatic endings of the show. And as always, Steve Scales' bongo playing is what ties it together. What an ending, what an incredible song. This could be the personnel for this show. This could be it. That would be a great live band. But of course, they're not done adding people. At this point, two more musicians take the stage. Keyboardist Bernie Worrell comes out backstage right. And guitarist Alex Weir just comes out. And that guy is just cranked to maximum from the very first moment he steps on stage. His energy is so infectious throughout this show. He's just like having a total blast the whole time from the first moment you see him. And with that, Steve Scales moves back to his full percussion apparatus. All nine musicians are on stage, the full ensemble has formed, and the first song they unleash their sound on is what else but burning down the house. Bernie Worrell and Alex Weir, the final two band members to take the stage, they bring some serious funk bona fides with them onto the stage between the two of them. Worrell, first of all, he's a legend in the world of funk. He was a founding member of Parliament Funkadelic, like the original funk band. Um, he's a really, really influential musician in the world of synthesizers. He did some really good work with early Moog synthesizers. Those are the ones that are spelled M-O-O-G, and you would think maybe it was Moog, but no, they're created by a guy named Bob Moog, and Bernie Worrell did some really neat stuff with Moog synthesizers back in the day, he used Moogs for bass in a way that now, I mean, the Moog synthesizer is just synonymous with synth bass, but like on Parliament's flashlight, that's something that he did for the first time, this sound that now you can still hear everywhere. Yeah. 
So Bernie Worrell was far from some hired gun keyboard player. He was a funk icon. He lent his distinct sound to the band for this show, and it's really cool that he's there on stage. Alex Weir, meanwhile, he played guitar and sang with the Brothers Johnson. They're this underrated funk R&B group from the late 70s and early 80s. They had some really killer records. Here's 1980s You Make Me Want to Wiggle, which featured Weir on lead and backup vocals. He is a born frontman, and in a lot of ways, Alex Weir kind of functions as this alt frontman for Talking Heads during this performance. He dances around, he's got this Stratocaster, he's always like being really flamboyant with the guitar, he works the crowd, he's having a really like good time and really showing it, and it's a big contrast that actually works really well on stage alongside David Byrne. So now that the whole nine-piece band is together, most viewers will probably notice something that's a little less immediately apparent if you're just listening to the album like I did for so many years, and that's the fact that the four core members of Talking Heads are white, and all five musicians they've hired to join them for this show are black. The result on screen is that the whole performance has this beautiful, like, utopian post-racial energy that's really magical while you're watching the film, even though it was filmed in America in 1984, it does exist within a broader and more complicated context that's at least worth acknowledging. So I've been chewing on that while I make this episode, and I think a couple different things about it. Like, there's this long history in America of white musicians taking ideas from black musicians without giving credit, or hiring black musicians for shows while retaining creative control and songwriting credit and royalties. I always recommend people the excellent documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, which is all about backup singers, and it's just broadly about backup singers, but it actually gets a bit into that second thing. So that's there, that broader context exists. But there's also this undeniable, like, utopian joy that emanates from every minute of this film. Like, I know the actual world offstage wasn't as simple as the world they created on that stage, but for all the more complicated, bigger picture issues related to race and music in America, when I watch Stop Making Sense, I'm actually most struck just by the simple, communal joy of the performance. It still feels unusual and special, even all these decades after it was filmed. So on that first verse of Burning Down the House, you actually can't hear either Worrell or Weir playing that much, even though they're newly out on stage. This tune has a great groove to it. I really like how they handle the arrangement. Burning Down the House is another really simple Talking Heads song. It's mostly just two chords, G, and then down a whole step to F. And it kind of just bounces back and forth between those two chords. There is a turnaround where it goes G, then up to A, then down to F. But a lot of this song is just G to F. And a lot of Talking Heads songs actually are just like one chord or two chords. Each of these songs sometimes will have a section where they go to an additional chord, but a lot of them are pretty simple. And I think every song that I'm talking about in this episode, with the exception of Heaven, is just one or two chords, predominantly. So Byrne is back to acoustic guitar, and he's just kind of playing those hits between the G and the F chord. Harrison is also back on electric. He's playing just like rhythmic stuff. It's actually kind of hard to hear what he's playing. France is playing a really simple drum groove, actually. The drum groove for this song is very straightforward. Scales, however, is contributing a lot to this. He's playing those big tom fills at every turnaround. Sometimes France plays those too, and they double them up. It's actually easier to hear that in the mix that's in the film than in the album mix, but uh, on both of them, they're both playing those fills sometimes, and that really carries it across to the next phrase each time they sing Burning Down the House. 
But the thing that's really driving the bus here is definitely Tina Weymouth. She's gone over to a small synthesizer for this song, so she's not playing the electric bass anymore. She's playing a synth bass part throughout this tune. It's a really simple part, but a super crucial one. She's playing this kind of galloping groove. Just back and forth between a G and an F. And that galloping pulse is this song's entire rhythmic identity. It's actually not dissimilar from the groove I talked about way back in year one when I talked about Hearts Barracuda. It's a time feel as old as horses. So on the second phrase, you can really hear Bernie Worrell. He's in on synth and he's doubling Burns' acoustic guitar part. But Worrell and Weir don't really open up until the third verse. Here we go. So here, in this third verse, this is where it really starts to sound like there's a large band playing. The basic groove is still cooking along, Weymouth is still really driving the bus underneath it all, but it really opens up. Worrell starts playing this synth part that's like the heart of the song. I love the synth part that he plays here. And Weir starts playing this way busier, funkier guitar part that's kind of mixed over on the right. So Weir's part is great, it adds a lot to the tune, but it's really Worrell's synth playing that burns down this particular house. Like I said, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that's a Prophet 5 synthesizer. The Prophet 5 is one of those super famous synths that you've heard in a million places on a million different songs, even if you didn't know that was the name. I was actually just talking about the Prophet when I was talking about the music from The Terminator on a recent Q&A episode, I believe. That early 80s film soundtrack also featured the Prophet. You kind of just hear it everywhere. It's made by a company called Sequential Circuits, which I think is a really good name for a synthesizer company. And I think they actually have two of them on stage. Worrell and Harrison are both playing them. I think they have identical keyboard setups next to one another. And on some songs, they're both playing, though on this tune, it's just Worrell. So the Prophet 5 can make a bunch of really interesting sounds. Two of those sounds feature on this tune. First, there's just that fatty kind of saw synth that Worrell uses throughout a bunch of this. It really starts to dominate the sound of the song once they get going. Like, check this out. It's just disgusting. It's this like monster synth. It really, really builds out the sound of the band. Like that synth sound, that's such a distinct sound. I do not know how to recreate that. I think you would probably need a prophet to make it properly. It's this like grainy, auto-wah, really gross tone, like an angry cat mixed with a laser gun. Playing just has so much bounce to it. It combines with Weymouth's synth bass, which also has so much bounce that just makes this song so springy. It's another case where there are a few crucial clicks faster than they are on the record. The studio version of this song on Speaking in Tongues, it's really great. It's an amazing recording, one of my favorite tracks on the album. But again, just like Slippery People, it's like 10 clicks slower, so it's a really different energy. funky and it works for the energy they're going for, but it's really, really different than the live version.
It's just a lot peppier when they're on stage. They're all contributing to that extra energy. Worrell is definitely bouncing along, though, on the keys. The last thing I want to point out on this tune is Worrell's second keyboard solo, which is very different than that first one, and I love it so much. It is weird. It's one of the weirdest solos in all of Stop Making Sense. So it starts kind of like the intro. It's playing sparsely. Steve Scales is playing some drum fills. And then... What in the world? I this I think this is the prophet. I know the prophet can do these kind of weird whistle bird sounds. I have no idea why Worrell decided that this solo was going to entirely play out with this strange arrhythmic sound, but it's such a perfect example of a concept that I've actually brought up before, the kite and anchor solo. There's this appealing kind of solo that I really like when a band is totally locked on a groove and then a soloist releases themselves from that groove and they fly up into the atmosphere, they're the kite while the rhythm section is the anchor. I call that a kite and anchor solo and I think about that concept a lot. I first talked about it last year on my episode about Rush and it comes up a lot. I mean, a lot of soloists like to do this. This is a great example of it actually. It's a really hip example because Worrell isn't like playing a million notes. He's not Steve Vai or something up there playing so fast that he's basically playing in his own tempo, he's almost just making weird sound effects and only barely acknowledging the actual tempo of the song. I love that, though. What a flex. So at the end of this section, he's playing this super weird, super out-of-time solo, and then suddenly, all at once, the singers sing Burning Down the House, and Worrell just does this killer glissando right back down to that original synth sound and locks right back into the pocket. It's such a strong transition, especially knowing that the same guy is playing both keyboard parts. Here we go. really just the Bernie Worrell and Steve Scales show here. They're both just going off. Scales is playing these killer solos. The two guys have really taken over driving the energy. I mean, Bernie Worrell! So here's the part in the episode where I could go on for another two hours, like I could just spend the next two months working on nothing but talking about Stop Making Sense because there's so much good stuff in the next few songs, but I'm going to move kind of quickly through it. I do want to highlight at least one thing from each of these songs because the next few songs, this is my favorite part of Stop Making Sense. So first, there's Life During Wartime. This is an awesome song. I think of this live recording actually as the definitive one. I mean, I guess I think of a lot of these as the definitive one, but this one in particular, because the group vocals on the chorus are so powerful. It's not just Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt. Alex Weir is also singing. There's a whole bunch of people singing, and the harmonies that they've come up with are just incredible sounding. Detroit, 
So over there on the right, you can also hear Alex Weary slipping and sliding around the neck of his guitar. He does that a lot on Stop Making Sense. It's kind of his signature move, but it's a nice flavor. It really adds. He does it some later, which I'll, I'll point out. But of the three guitarists on stage, Alex Weary is definitely the flashiest, and I think that he deploys that flash really effectively. Next comes Making Flippy Floppy. Really cool tune that actually features two great solos. The first is David Byrne, who takes this pretty killing guitar solo in the middle of the song. And then at the end, Bernie Worrell brings that kite and anchor energy back in a super intense way. It's this incredible, weird, weird keyboard solo. At the end of the tune, there's this kind of straightforward funk jam going on in the rhythm section, and he just does not care. The guy is like floating on the abstract above the rest of the band. I feel like a lesser keyboard player would be playing a whole bunch of licks or trying to really get in the pocket, and Bernie Worrell does not care, and it makes the tune so much cooler as a result. Next comes Swamp, another tune that I really dig. This one's notable because Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry leave the stage, and the groove vocals are all sung by the men, which gives it a really different energy. So that yelped high vocal is actually Alex Weir. For a while, I kind of thought that that was David Byrne just because I was listening to this and not watching it. But no, it's Alex Weir doing that. Byrne is totally in character here. He's this sleazy, slicked back hair guy. He's totally singing in his lower register. Let me tell you a story. He's down there the whole time. And that kind of frees Alex Weir up to do all this hollering. I love what Weir does vocally on this tune. He does this big tongue roll that almost sounds like a vocal warm up at one point. His rhythm guitar playing is really great too. He has this really cool 12-8 thing to a later verse. They're kind of already in 12-8, you know, boom, there's this kind of shuffle groove and 12-8 just superimposes triplets over a 4-4 feel. So he starts playing this part, this like, it mixes with what Steve Scales is playing on percussion and really just kind of mixes up the pulse. It's super hip. You hear it? Mabry and Holt make a dramatic re-entrance on the next tune, What a Day That Was, which is probably the most dramatically lit song in the whole set. It's the one where everybody is lit like they're telling a scary story during Halloween. In every chorus, when the big, powerful group vocals enter, Alex Weir is right there on the guitar. He is just flying around on the guitar throughout this whole tune. It's really fun to focus on what he's playing. He's doing all these first-string slides. It's super fun, and the whole song almost becomes a guitar feature once you start focusing on what he's playing. It's really great stuff. Oh. 
After that comes another one of my favorite songs in Stop Making Sense, and really just one of my favorite songs flat out. This Must Be the Place is a really important song in Stop Making Sense. It's this moment of humanity and intimacy. Everyone just kind of stands around this lamp. This is the song where David Byrne dances with the lamp. It's the moment when he smiles genuinely in the performance, and it's just such a beautifully arranged, beautifully performed song. another real showcase for that prophet. Those synth sounds that they're getting are so beautiful. Mabry holds scales, Worrell and Weir are each contributing so much to this song. There's the vocals, they mix so beautifully with Burns' leads. Scales is adding all this lovely stuff, these little bits and bobs, wind chimes and triangle hits that really open things up. Worrell is adding a bunch of color on the keyboard. His keyboard part is kind of the more flavor part, while Harrison is covering the bass. And Weir is doing a lot of flavor as well. He's adding all this lovely stuff on the guitar. Really, Worrell and Weir are the two flavor musicians throughout this performance. They add so much. Like, just listen to what is going on in the rhythm guitar and the synthesizer. I love Alex Weir's playing throughout this film, but especially on this song. He's out front, the guitar is very present, he's got this nice like chorus effect on his strat, but he adds so much to the song's vibe without ever getting in the way or seeming like he's playing too much. And a lot of time he's just playing chicka chuck, chicka chuck, chicka chuck, just kind of chucks on the string, but it adds a ton to the song's bounce. So this is where David Byrne dances with the light fixture. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And then it's time to end the song. This Must Be The Place is the show's smallest and most intimate moment, so it only makes sense that it's followed by the show's biggest and most dramatic song. As the crowd cheers and the band moves back to their places, Bernie Worrell begins a simple, dramatic pattern on a synth arpeggiator, and before you know it, we're off. may only arrive two-thirds of the way in to stop making sense, but for my money, Once in a Lifetime is the dramatic peak of the show. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. You may find yourself in another part of the world. You may find yourself... This song, co-written by Talking Heads and producer Brian Eno for their 1980 album Remain in Light, is one of the most famous and definitely one of the most often quoted Talking Heads songs, and it is a brilliant centerpiece for Stop Making Sense. I say it's the centerpiece because after this comes the Tom Tom Club song, which is a deliberate total change in pace. Byrne vanishes for a minute. He comes back out in the big suit and he does that whole thing for Girlfriend is Better. Then they're kind of on the way out. So the final act of the show, it's just a little bit more diffuse and looser. But this song, Once in a Lifetime, 
once in a lifetime comes at the end of this nonstop building momentum, and a lot of that momentum is how constantly they're shifting and transforming. They've gone from this red villain march of swamp to the underlit horror movie of what a day that was to this kind of intimate den hang where there's a lamp and this nice soft lighting for this must be the place. And now, Burn dons this pair of glasses and changes characters again. He becomes this sort of imagined everyman and begins a church revival preacher sermon about the myths and mirages of a common consumerist lifestyle. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. You may find yourself in another part of the world. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. Once in a Lifetime has some interesting harmonic stuff going on, and the chords and the arrangement of the groove come together to give it this, like, elevated, suspended energy that's really a whole mood. This song conjures such a headspace for me, like, I've woken up to something more, and I'm now in this state of elevated suspension, just waiting to find out what that is. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. You may ask yourself, well... A lot of that is the chords. This is a very unresolved song harmonically. It's in D major, and it really resolves when it finally resolves, but it doesn't reveal the fact that it's in D major until the end, not in a kind of dramatic chord progression kind of a way. At the start, there's just the keyboard, and there's the groove, and the groove is this kind of pacing two-chord thing that never resolves. Bernie Worrell's keyboard part is, again, a super crucial part of this. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But first, let's just look at the groove. So once again, Chris Francis' drum part is a pretty straightforward thing. He's just playing a pretty standard groove. And I really think that because of all the other musicians on stage, he was freed up to just kind of be the clock in the middle of the stage and to hold it down, which he does admirably throughout this entire show. So he's holding it down with a pretty standard thump, pop, and sizzle. The percussive flavor is coming from Steve Scales. He's playing these wood blocks. He's just adding this nice flair. It's a really iconic little percussion riff. The bass and the rhythm guitar are alternating between two notes, an A and an F sharp. They just go up and then down and then back up again. When you put those parts together, you get this. Bernie Worrell's synthesizer is the final piece of the puzzle, I believe still on the profit. He's playing three notes, an A, a D, and an E, and that creates this sort of D suspended ninth sound, which is a beautiful chord on its own, and using an arpeggiator to play it creates this beautiful sort of ethereal quality that's really essential to the sound of this song. Now I say arpeggiator because when I originally made this episode, I was pretty sure that Morel was using an arpeggiator on his synthesizer to make that sound, but I heard from a few listeners and I've listened to the recording and nowadays I'm not actually so sure. So I'm going to leave in my explanation of an arpeggiator just because that's interesting, but I just wanted to note here that it is possible or even likely that Morel is just playing these notes in time with his fingers instead of using an arpeggiator. So an arpeggiator, most synths have an arpeggiator function, otherwise known as the ARP function. What it does is it kind of lets you become a synth lord. If you have a synthesizer and you haven't played with the arpeggiator on it, I really recommend it because it's super fun. It turns the instrument into this kind of generative device that can create all kinds of beautiful sounds. So once you turn the ARP function on, when you play a chord, rather than playing the chord, you know, all the notes sounding at the same time, it starts to play them one after another in the sequence that you press the keys according to the 
the tempo and subdivision that you set ahead of time. So Talking Heads is playing once in a lifetime at around 123 beats per minute. So if I set my synth arpeggiator to 123 beats per minute and I put in those three notes, I get a similar sound. If I start with the A, it'll just play the A over and over again. Then I add the D and it starts just playing an A and a D back and forth. But when I add the E, it starts to play those three notes in perfect time and in perfect sequence. That synth part is the gel that holds all this together. The groove is the feet in the pews, and the synth is the air beneath the stained glass. You may ask yourself, where is that Lord Chodomobile? You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. The chorus on Once in a Lifetime is harmonically interesting, just like the rest of the song. The vocal harmonies suggest this feeling of resolution, but it doesn't sound resolved, and that's because the rhythm section harmonies don't actually change. So Mabry and Holt, they're adding so much to this song, this whole like church revival gospel sound. They're singing solidly in D major, their harmonies with burn, super in D major. If you just played them kind of with the expected harmony, it would sound like this. But that's not what it sounds like because the rhythm section just keeps on undulating on that suspended sound. The bass and the rhythm guitar is still going back and forth between A and F sharp. So that suspends the D over an A, which doesn't sound resolved. Like one over five sounds pretty unresolved. It almost sounds more like a five sus chord. So it's just not resolved sounding. And then the synth is floating on that sus nine thing as well. They just don't feel resolved at all while the vocals really do. So the result is this feeling of tense, almost catharsis, where you can feel the revelation coming, but it's not quite here yet. Do you feel that? It's so knotted up and tense. Just cycling and spiraling without ever touching down, so close to the ground, but still suspended in the air. Spinning and spinning like a top, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. And as David Byrne repeats the song's famous mantra, and Alex Weir's lightly picked guitar carries us forward, at long last, Talking Heads reaches toward catharsis. This moment, what what can I say about this moment? You don't have to be watching the film to understand that this is the spiritual, emotional, and musical peak of Stop Making Sense. If you are watching the film, you really know it. This whole song almost is an unbroken shot on David Byrne as he performs this song. His performance is 
unbelievable during this section. I mean, he like bends backward. He comes standing back up. He begins singing. The lights are just going nuts. And the band finally resolves to a D major chord. And it's that resolution, not just to the one chord, but to a new chord progression that makes this final section land as hard as it does. At last, after waiting the entire song, we're in D and not just D, but a D through a double plagal cadence, maybe the most epic cadence of all. D going to C, to G, and then back to D, four chords resolving to one chords over and over and over again. Time isn't holding us, he says, and every time I hear Talking Heads perform this song, I'm transported out of my chair and onto the stage with them, nine incredible musicians coming together for one perfect moment in time. We can debate about which version of a band is definitive, which personnel contributed what to the overall sound, but in the end, the band is the one that went on stage and performed, and in this moment, on this stage, this band gave one of the greatest performances ever recorded. This was Talking Heads. Nine musicians, 90 minutes, once in a lifetime. That'll do it for my analysis of Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. This was a different kind of thing for me and it was a fun challenge picking what to focus on when, as I mentioned, I could have made like five more episodes about this film. I do hope that you all go and watch Stop Making Sense after listening to this and I hope that I've given you some new things to listen for and appreciate when you do. It's been so cool just climbing inside of that film for the last couple of weeks. It's really one of the most life-affirming, beautiful movies I've ever seen. Thank you so much to all of my patrons, to everyone who's supporting the creation of this show, and to anyone who has been a patron at any point during year three. All of you make this possible, and I think about this sometimes, how like, even ten years ago, Strong Songs might have just been yet another cool idea that I had, that I thought, well, that would be pretty cool if I could do that. Unfortunately, I can't do that, because why, how would I even get funding for that? And then I would just leave it and never do it. But that's not the case, I get to spend my time making this show, talking about music for a whole bunch of people every two weeks and that's thanks to all of you so thank you all so much if you want to help me keep this show going go to patreon.com slash strong songs you'll get some cool bonus stuff if you do that you can also just make a one-time donation there's a link for that in the show notes social stuff playlists strong song store there's all kinds of links down in the show notes so check that out for lots of good strong song stuff and hey we're coming to the end of year three though i've got a few more fun things planned for you before that as well as some bonus stuff for anyone over on the patreon it's kind of crazy that this year is almost over it took a long time but also went really fast. This episode's outro soloist is Carlos Ini, who kicked us off this year with a killer Barry Sax solo. So stick around for Carlos, and I'll be back before you know it with more strong songs. (laughs) 